there's an analogy I'd like to use that, you know, we're all a part of this really massive army in rare disease, whether you enlisted or whether you were drafted. So whether you're here because you yourself have a diagnosis or you have a child who does, or you have a spouse or um, a partner who was diagnosed, which would really put you in that drafted category, or whether you were you enlisted because early on in your life, something happened, which caused you to be incredibly passionate about rare diseases. We need everybody in this fight together um, and in the trenches together. Um, and we all fight with this incredibly deep commitment and passion um, collectively for rare diseases. For the rare disease community, there's a common model. Alone, we are rare. Together, we are strong. Advocacy organization plays this important role in connecting families of rare diseases, amplifying their voices, and helping to improve health outcome for people living with rare diseases. Today's podcast guest is Annie Kennedy, who has over three decades of experience in advocacy work. A veteran leader in the rare disease patient advocacy movement, Annie joined the Every Life Foundation in the year 2018, where she led the National Economic Burden of Rare Disease Study, Development of the ICD Code Roadmap, and the Community-Driven Guide to Patient Involvement in Rare Disease Therapy Development. Annie previously held leadership roles at the Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, also known as PPMD, and the Muscular Dystrophy Association, also known as MDA. She's a soft-after advisor to patient-centered organizations and initiatives across nonprofit and governmental sectors. If you are new to advocacy work or a seasoned advocate, become inspired by Annie's story to carry forward despite the road to advocacy work is nonstop, exhausting, and at times bumpy with many ups and downs. Join this collective energy to advocate for rare disease research. Hello, this is the Newborn Streeting Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MDSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, 
Become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Individuals living with rare genetic disease, their parents, families, and communities have been at the center of your life's work. For over three decades, your advocacy work has been critical to amplifying the voices. And Annie, you're currently the Director of Chief of Policy, Advocacy, and Patient Engagement for the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases. Can you share with our listeners the mission of the Every Life Foundation? What are some key accomplishments and how can everyone get involved in your important work? Sure. So um, first of all, it's really wonderful to be here with you today. And we're just so grateful at the Everlife Foundation to have opportunities to collaborate and partner with MBSTRN on our shared um, priorities and where our missions align. So um, to just talk a little bit about the Everlife Foundation, we are a coalition of patient advocacy organizations and other stakeholders who are focused on rare disease policy. And we really focus on policy areas around three key areas. The first area is around eliminating the diagnostic odyssey for individuals living with rare diseases. And that's where I think we really um, share a priority together and work closely together. Um, The other is around therapeutic development and developing regulatory pathways and infrastructure and resources for Um, individuals living with rare diseases to have um, approved therapies. And we want to close that gap for the more than 95% of therapies that do not yet have FDA-approved products. And then the third area is for individuals who do have approved products, or once we have approved products, we want to ensure that there is expedient access to those products. And so those are really our key areas, diagnostics and newborn screening, therapeutic development, and access and value. To date, um, some of the many successes that we've had is really working um, to identify where some of the challenges and obstacles around those policy areas are, developing evidence to um, embolden our efforts as we work with our community, um, building champions in Congress. We've um, helped develop the Congressional Rare Disease Caucus and built a lot of congressional champions with our rare disease community. And then we've identified either existing congressional vehicles that we can ensure that our rare disease community is um, anchored within. So for example, the 21st Century Cures Act, the various user fee agreements, um, the various iterations of the Newborn Screening Saves Lives Act, or we work to develop legislation that reflects the priorities of the rare disease community. And there have been numerous incentives and legislative efforts that we have worked to lead. Um, So that is really our method and our process. um, And we'll dig into that a little bit more throughout our discussion. Annie, the Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases also plays an important role in advancing newborn screening research advocacy in the United States. What is your vision for how stakeholders across newborn screening and the rare disease community can work together? Yeah, I really appreciate that question. So as I said, one of our key policy priorities is eliminating the diagnostic odyssey for individuals living with rare diseases. Um, We recently conducted um, the National Economic Burden of Rare Disease Study 
And one of our findings when we conducted that study was that of, of the broad rare disease community living in the U.S., the national average diagnostic odyssey of those who responded to our survey was 6.3 years and included 17 providers and specialists. Well, the 6.3 years is a finding that aligns with data that we've seen other places and data I'm sure you've generated in many of your studies. That 17 providers and specialists being a part of that diagnostic odyssey was a new data point and a new finding. Um, we really need to dig in and work to eliminate this unnecessary diagnostic odyssey for our rare disease community. And there are many reasons why community members face these challenges. And I know that this is something near and dear to your hearts at MBSTRN. And I know we all believe very strongly in our very successful public health system of newborn screening. And we all know that there are other diagnostic tools being developed and available that would help also close the gap for those who um, could be have their diseases detected earlier, even for those who do not have pediatric onset conditions, who have adult onset conditions for whom we could be detecting their diagnoses earlier, certainly at the onset of their first signs of their diagnosis. Um, so among the things we do, we work both on a federal and a state level. We are working with stakeholders across the ecosystem to identify opportunities to modernize the existing system. We first and foremost want to make sure that our existing partners who are working in these systems are resourced. So we're very concerned about the lack of resources for our federal health agency partners that are currently running our public health systems. We're very concerned about the lack of resources going into the state labs and the state health departments um, and the way that these resources are um, being disseminated when new conditions are added to the RUSP, how difficult it is to have the resources in the states to make sure that new conditions are implemented. Um, so much of the work that we do both on the federal and the state level is around appropriations and around funding. Um, but we also do a lot of work um, to look at how we can modernize or update these systems. We're really concerned that as new therapies, new opportunities to detect conditions are being developed, that we're lagging behind in our ability to add conditions to the federal recommended uniform screening panel and to add conditions to the states. And ultimately what ends up happening is that we have uh, conditions that could be detected earlier, conditions that could be treated, and babies who are being left undetected and untreated. And that is certainly a circumstance that we cannot um, ethically allow to happen here in the U.S. Annie, I think you ran through several of your key projects that really help inform stakeholders all across newborn screening. And I think the Every Life Foundation's work really guides the efforts of researchers, clinicians, policymakers, and other key stakeholders. But I want to follow up on one thing you talked about, that diagnostic odyssey that impacts the newborns, families, and their communities that are really at the heart of newborn screening. And I think one thing that you've taught us over the years is that information is power. And so I think, you know, it, can you share a little bit of your thoughts with our community on 
as advancements are made on the our ability to screen, diagnose, and treat, what do we need to do to make sure that we're ready to translate those new discoveries to the benefit of newborns and their families? Yeah, I mean, that in and of itself could be an eight-hour podcast, and I would certainly want a lot of other um, colleagues and experts to be here to fully answer that question. But I will say, um, so the first thing is... Um, we are, so we led that National Economic Burden of Rare Disease Study. And as you said, I sort of ran through that really quickly. Um, the first reason we did, I'm going to back up just a little bit, Amy. The first thing is we led that study because we felt like we needed to move from these back of the envelope calculations around who the rare disease community is, what's happening within rare disease, to some real evidence around um what was happening within the rare disease community. One of the things we were concerned about it was in within policy, we spend so much time talking about direct cost, the cost of rare disease. But the our patient community felt like that discussion wasn't actually reflecting the absorbed cost, the real cost of living with rare disease. And we needed to really sort of lift the veil, look beyond that tip of the iceberg and look beneath the surface and talk about what does it really cost to live with rare disease? Where are those costs really being absorbed? And let's have that real discussion, but it needs to be a comprehensive discussion. And so we led that study. It included an analysis of the direct costs in rare disease. It also, though, very importantly, included an analysis of what are considered the non-medical costs, those productivity losses, um, lost time from work because you or a loved one are hospitalized or attending medical visits or can no longer work full-time in the workplace and in your profession because of your diagnosis. Um, we also looked at um, what are considered to be non-medical costs, but are often prescribed by providers. They're just not reimbursed. So they could be medical foods, um, medical nutrition, they could be modifications made to a home or a vehicle because of a disability related to a diagnosis. Um, and those costs are substantial. They could be transportation costs themselves to and from medical appointments. Um, they Many times people pay out of pocket for paid caregiving and um, paid nursing, but those are not costs that are reimbursed elsewhere. Um, if you're attending, if you're going to hospital visits or clinical visits or having experimental therapies and there's one family member traveling with you or the individual, but there's somebody staying behind with other children and other family members and you're paying for those expenses. So we wanted to look at all of this. What we found was that this cost of um, living with a rare disease of the costs in 2019, so in one year, when we looked at um, 379 diseases, so of the 10,000 rare diseases, we were just examining 379 of those um, of our survey respondents, and there were a little over 1,400. That cost in 2019 was close to a trillion dollars. And of that, impact of that cost, nearly 60% of that cost was being shouldered directly by families and the community. Just about 40% of those costs were the direct costs. So of the discussions that we have typically, those policy discussions, the discussions around reducing healthcare spend, 
we spend all of our time talking about 40% of the actual cost of living with a rare disease. And what we ignore is the actual other 60% that families are left scrambling to cover by themselves, but must be paid for because they're actual needs related to living with a rare disease. The other thing that was really important that we cover, uncovered was that the cost drivers within those direct costs were inpatient stays, outpatient stays, costs that are directly related to the diagnostic odyssey in rare disease. And so when we align that data with what we saw from those data points around visiting 17 providers, we have data now around how many of those involved out-of-state visits, visits to specialists and geneticists, et cetera. It was really important to us that we dig even further around what are the policy implications and could we even do a follow-on study to look at what the economic impact of timely diagnosis versus delayed diagnosis would be? Could we go even further and dig into and better understand what the actual cost of delaying diagnosis or what the cost benefit of timely diagnosis would be in rare disease? And so we've actually been doing that study because we think that it will be really tied to supporting, as we just talked about, um, the existing public health efforts and our efforts to ensure that the public health work of our state health departments, of our federal agency partners are supported. If we can help show that newborn screening isn't just ethically the right thing to do, we all know that introducing interventions at the earliest moment possible improves outcomes and is ethical. But can we also demonstrate that it makes fiscal sense and so we're really working to show what does it mean to either reduce or shift costs for an individual when we can identify that individual's diagnosis earlier. So that was a really long way to sort of back into the answer to your question, Amy, is to say, well, we certainly have legislative efforts on the federal and the state level around reauthorization of federal legislation. We have a bill called State RUSP Alignment that um, requires timelines and funding resources and states to help align the conditions that have been added to the federal RUSP to the states. What's really important to us though, is to make sure that we have the data and the evidence also to support this so that we really have this rising tide to just lift all boats, if you will. Um, so those are a lot of the efforts that we are leading, but with our partners, we're not doing it alone. And I'm really grateful to be here today because time and time again, um, we turn to our experts and our partners here at MBSTRN to really help us support these efforts. And so that last study that I'm talking about and citing, we've been really grateful to have the support and partnership of MBSTRN um, on that study as we look at how we design that, how we make sure we're understanding our findings and what the implications and application of those findings might be. So hopefully I answered your question. I probably answered three others and maybe open for the <laughs> worms. Um, um, 
Yeah. It's, I think it's how our collaboration has gone over the years. There are so many great things to tackle. And I think your work on not only the ethical side, but the economic side really helps guide research. So I know as I've been designing research studies, we really think about the key principles and the things that you're exploring um, on the ethical and the economic side. So I'll turn it over to my co-host, Dr. Chan, to ask the next question. Prior to the Every Life Foundation, you were involved in the Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, also known as PPMD, and the Muscular Dystrophy Association, also known as MDA. In that time, you helped lead the legislative efforts around the passage and implementation of the MD Care Act in 2001, 2008, 2014, and the Patient Focused Impact Assessment Act, which became the Patient Experience Data Provision within the 21st Century Care Act. Congratulations, Annie, on these incredibly impactful efforts. Can you tell our listeners about the -the behind-the-scenes activities that were undertaken to lead these efforts and the implementation strategies? So I think, like most of us, um, all of our careers and all of our um, advocacy journeys evolve. And so um, much like that, all of these legislative efforts really evolved out of um, the patient journeys that I had the privilege to be a part of and um, the pipelines that um, the communities I was working within were driving. And so to give a little more detail and context to that, um, very early in my career, I was working with the Muscular Dystrophy Association and um, started my work um, doing direct service within our clinical spaces um, in the in early 90s, late 90s. And that was when our first natural history studies were starting. We were first starting to talk about clinical trials. Um, The space was just beginning, research experimental therapies for families was really just beginning. Um, It was a very exciting time. It was a very hopeful time. Um, But there were very few resources. And any funding going into research was funding coming directly from patient advocacy groups. Um, It's patient advocacy groups. And to this day, the same thing is happening. Um, Animal models were being funded by the patient advocacy groups, Um, early research, um, early investments into endpoint development, um, attracting scientists to our spaces was all being done by those um, patient advocacy organizations and patient communities. And so what we as a collective, as a community did in muscular dystrophy is we wanted to ensure that there would be some federal investment and federal funding into the muscular dystrophies to help incentivize the space and help bring others together. And so that was really the thought behind the Muscular Dystrophy um, Community Assistance Research and Education Act, or the MD Care Act, um, was to really bring and convalesce and catalyze the community. And so that's what we did. And so um, the MD Care Act was first passed um, and signed into law in 2001. We reauthorized it again in 2008 and it was amended in 2013. And each time we did that, um, we were following sort of the momentum of what was happening in muscular dystrophies. We were adding to it, we were updating it, we were building on that momentum. And what we saw happen over time was we went from having 
um, almost no companies or investment in the space to, at the very beginning, um, ensuring that there were new NIH investments, the establishment of the Muscular Dystrophy Coordinating Committee, which brought together all the federal agencies to develop an action plan for the muscular dystrophies, which started to attract biopharmaceutical partners into the space. And I like to say, it takes a crowd to draw a crowd. There started to be interest in the muscular dystrophies. Um, and it wasn't just the patient groups then that were providing the funding and bringing the partners together. And one of the things I always like to say is the one of the superpowers of patient advocacy groups is the power to convene. And so we could bring Congress together with federal agencies, together with industry partners, together with um, other stakeholders that really started to care about our um, community and answer the really hard questions um, and then help facilitate the handoffs as they were needed along the way. Um, then as we started, our pipeline started to heat up, um, we started to ask questions about, well, what else are we going to need along the way? We're going to need newborn screening. Um, we are going to need an access environment. We're going to need a regulatory scaffolding and infrastructure. And one of the organizations that was really able to do deep dives into this work was an organization called Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy or PPMD. So I was really eager and excited to get to go there and um, do some of that work in the Duchenne muscular dystrophy space with that organization, PPMD. So again, we were just really following what was happening um, as the pipelines were evolving um, and as a patient community, really bringing together um, the energy of the community and our congressional champions to really develop legislation and statute to make sure that patients and our patient voice and the patient experience and patient data were going to inform how clinical trials were being designed and how regulatory decisions were going to be considered. And now we're doing very similar things within the access environment. Now that we have approved products um, in the rare space um, here at Every Life, we're doing very similar work to make sure that regulatory decisions um, don't just consider what patients care about, but that patient considerations are central to inform that decision-making and are driving those considerations that were not just afterthoughts, but that were forethoughts. And so that's just really the evolution of how that legislation happened and how those funding priorities and appropriation priorities happened. And we've really seen a shift in this overall ecosystem and how patients are now not um, on the outskirts of um, legislative priorities and um, regulatory considerations. But we now have become um, required uh, participants in advisory committee meetings, in FACA, or federal advisory committees. Um, it is a requirement now that patient experience data be a part of a regulatory review. And again, that's not accidental. We've been a part of writing that legislation and working with members of Congress to write that in. Um, but then again, it's the patient organizations working with social scientists and academics that are generating the data then that can go into those frameworks and those considerations. So it's been a really phenomenal partnership with all of the stakeholders together, figuring out where were the gaps, where did we need to go, how did we need to get there? What were the authorities that our federal agency partners needed in order to facilitate it? 
and then helping to make it happen. It's so wonderful. As I was listening to you, Annie, I can picture you running across Capitol Hill, getting your bills passed and getting your priorities heard. Um, and as you mentioned, the power of families and rare disease advocates to convene has been especially important and impactful. We're lucky to record this podcast during February. And February is a special month. As you know, every year, the last day of February is a day set aside to raise awareness for rare diseases and help to think about improving access to treatment and medical representation for these individuals, their families, and communities. What kinds of rare disease activities is Every Life involved in this year? Yeah, this is um really the most exciting time of the year for us. Um, and I'm so excited to be talking to you now. Um, we are on the eve of uh, Rare Disease Week. And we actually, it's sort of, it's gone from a day to a week. And really, it's a month where we really, um, someday we'll just take over the calendar. It'll just be rare diseases all the time. Um, and so what we have next week is we're really grateful to work closely with NIH and FDA where NIH has dedicated a day to um, focus on rare diseases. FDA dedicates a day focused on rare diseases. And then we host um, a legislative conference that brings together all the advocates who are coming to Washington to really focus on the legislative priorities that our community will then be taking to the Hill the following day. So the legislative conference, so the FDA day is on Monday, the NIH day is on Tuesday, our legislative conference is on Wednesday, and then our advocates head to the Hill on Thursday. Before advocates start their Hill meetings on Wednesday or on Thursday, we have a caucus briefing convened by, as I mentioned before, that there is a, um, Congressional Rare Disease Caucus. So those caucus co-chairs host a Congressional Rare Disease Caucus briefing in the morning to really make sure that our members of Congress are aware of some of the um, most pressing priorities of the rare disease community. And then we have more than 800 advocates who are coming to Washington next week who will head to the Hill on Thursday and meet with their members of Congress, which we're really thrilled about. Um, Two of the evenings next week um, are also very special evenings for us. On Tuesday night, we will have a documentary screening. Um, every year during Rare Disease Week, we have a screening of a documentary um, that has been um, created by members of the rare disease community and highlights a journey within rare disease. And we'll be doing the same thing next Tuesday night. And then on Thursday night, um, we have what we call the rare artist reception. So Every Life is really proud to um, facilitate our national rare artist program, um, which features artwork created by individual artists who also happen to be diagnosed with rare diseases. And every year during Rare Disease Week, we have a reception that um, includes many of the artists who have pieces in that gallery, um, which will be showcased on the Hill throughout Rare Disease Week. And we're delighted to host many members of Congress and other honored guests at that reception to close out our events uh, next week. And so that's what's happening. Um, some elements of it are streamed and are virtual. All of the um, Hill events themselves are um, in person because they're on the Hill. Um, so thank you for asking. We encourage people, um, if you're not aware of the events yet, um, we 
um, we'll be sending out press releases and information and action alerts that will be happening in conjunction with that event. Um, and we always encourage people to be connected to us through everylife.org and our advocacy program falls under what we call our Rare Disease Legislative Advocates Program or rdla.org, which is Every Life's um, platform for all of our rare disease community partners. Thank you so much, Annie, for sharing all these important resources. Are you involved in training the next generation of advocates? And what do you tell them about newborn screening research? Yes, we, um, so thank you for the question. We actually do train um, advocates in a number of ways. Um, and I, I would say it's this generation of advocates. Um, so first through our RDLA program, as I just mentioned, we actually provide formalized advocacy training programs. We have what we call our rare advocacy learning program. We have a program that's tailored specifically even to young adults. So we have a young adult um, representatives of RARE, our YAR program, and we have a leadership workshop that we offer every year to those advocates who are interested in serving as patient representatives throughout our ecosystem. And then we actually have a mentorship program um, for advocates who are interested in um, having some one-on-one -on -one opportunities for mentorship. Um, anytime any advocate participates in any of our programs, whether it's Rare Disease Week, as I just mentioned, or we have a complimentary program during August, which is in-district um, Hill events um, or advocacy events, we do trainings and prep all of the advocates for all of those events. And then all throughout the year, we have tools and resources and um, primers about all of the different topics that we're talking about. We have monthly webinars and newsletters because our goal is to make engagement in federal and state um, policy very um, um, accessible to our community. And so we do that so many different ways. And we want to make sure that any member of the rare disease community who is working on any solution to any obstacle they've encountered um, can find those tools through us to um, work on those issues. Those can be very separate from the policy issues that every life is working towards. We like to provide the tools to advocates to work towards their respective policy solutions as well. Um, but with respect to diagnostics and newborn screening, um, we do provide a specific resource for advocates who are working on newborn screening policy. And every year we facilitate what we call the newborn screening boot camp. And we convene that boot camp both in person and virtually. We've traditionally held that in conjunction, in conjunction with a um, national newborn screening conference, um, which many here will be familiar with, the APHL Newborn Screening Summit. And we hold this our newborn screening workshop at the beginning of the APHL meeting in an effort to have more patient advocates have a presence um, at the APHL newborn screening meeting so that more patient advocates are also meeting with state leaders and state health departments. Um, but our newborn screening bootcamp is an opportunity for patient advocates to um, learn about how to build evidence for developing nominations towards the ROSP, how to plan state pilots, how what the considerations are for um, ROSP addition, and how to network with one another and um, build out their programs. And 
Um, we've also really spent a lot of time looking at what that follow-up program and implementation in the states and the back end looks like. Annie, how did you know leading advocacy work was your calling? Can you share your career journey with our listeners? Um, I didn't know that advocacy work was my calling. I think like probably many people, um, if you had asked me, I guess 30 years ago, what I was going to be doing, I would have given you a very different answer. Um, I actually, when I was, and actually that would have been college, um, I would have told you I was going into um, medicine. um, And I was actually at that time thinking I would go into pediatric neurology. So I probably didn't land so far off or so far afield because I do certainly spend a lot of time with pediatric neurologists. Um, But Um, Life certainly takes different turns and has other plans. And I um, had a somebody I was very close to when I was um, near the end of college who was diagnosed with a um, rare form of cancer. And so my um, plan to go to graduate school was delayed just a little bit to become a caregiver. Um, And while he was first given... um, a timeline of three months after diagnosis to live. Um, He lived 17 months from the time of diagnosis, but I learned over those 17 months about um, strength and about grit. I learned a lot about the healthcare system. I learned a lot about being a caregiver and I learned a lot about patient advocacy, although I would not have used any of those terms at that time for what was happening. Um, I also would not have even considered what um, was happening at the time as a rare disease experience. We just knew that when we were calling the American Cancer Society and other places, um, his diagnosis didn't fit in anywhere and there were no therapies and no treatments and nobody had ever heard of it before. So it was an N of one, um, but um, the care that he was receiving was really state of the art in Baltimore. Um, But that life has other plans. And so I ended up going to work for um, an organization that I had volunteered for, for 10 years. And I had for a long time been a volunteer at the summer camps at the Muscular Dystrophy Association. And so while I pursued a different type of graduate school than I had planned, um, I started working for MDA in their um, local offices and coordinating clinics and providing direct services to families and going to schools and doing um, seminars and symposia and direct um, support to families. And I ended up directing that summer camp for 10 years that I had volunteered in. Um, And what turned on advocacy for me was that when you would be in clinics with families or you would be advocating for equipment needs or looking for social service resources for families, um, there would be many, many times that you would actually hit the end of the road for a family and a family that was super, super um, in need of a resource would absolutely be ineligible for that benefit or that resource. And I found that to be completely unacceptable. And so I decided to go into policy and felt like if a rule didn't apply, we needed to change the rule. And so that's where advocacy started for me, was rewriting and fixing a system that felt very broken um, on behalf of families who were 
needed to be eligible for benefits for which they were deserving. And so that's where advocacy started for me, was working um, in the clinics and in the school systems. Um, and I feel very fortunate that while my career has wend and wound in very many different places, I still, to this day, get to be friends with and um, work with many of those same families that I knew 30 years ago and I was first meeting and sitting in diagnostic conferences with um, at the start of my career. The road to advocacy work is nonstop and at times bumpy. Do you have any stories of inspirations that keeps you going? Yeah, I love that question. I have to say every single day, I mean, there are hundreds and thousands of stories I have that inspire me and keep me going. And I have to say, I just, I have the best role in the world because not a day goes by that I don't get to meet somebody else who just doesn't just inspire me. They just blow my mind. Um, And I think the other thing that's just amazing about this community and this work that we get to do is um, I think without exception, almost every single person is so committed to um, rare disease because of some type of personal connection. Um, There's an analogy I'd like to use that, you know, we're all a part of this really massive army in rare disease and whether you've been enlisted into the army or draft, whether you enlisted or whether you were drafted. So whether you're here because you yourself have a diagnosis or you have a child who does, or you have a spouse or um, a partner who was diagnosed, which would really put you in that drafted category, or whether you were you enlisted because early on in your life, something happened, which caused you to be incredibly passionate about rare diseases. We need everybody in this fight together um, and in the trenches together. Um, And we all fight with this incredibly deep commitment and passion um, collectively for rare diseases. And so it's, what's funny to me is that there are so many people who I've worked with for so many years who sometimes I just assume are in that enlisted category that you don't realize have a personal connection. And then at some point you find out that they themselves have a child with a rare disease or they themselves have a diagnosis or lost a loved one. Um, And that inspires me every day. But I will say just to draw from something since this is the MBSTRN podcast, um, we recently had um, recently the Advisory Committee for Heritable Disorders and Newborns and Children convened. And I would say without exception, every time that a committee meets, there is an opportunity for public testimony. And the communities that come forward and share their journeys very openly, very honestly, are so powerful and so brave um, and so generous. And during that time, um, both there was time dedicated to both the Crabbe community and both the Duchenne community to share their stories. Um, and there was a young boy who opened up the Crabbe time, the Crabbe testimony. And I do not know him personally, but he was 12 years old. And he provided phenomenally articulate testimony before a federal advisory committee. And he talked about the fact that he's 12 and he owns his own business mowing lawns 
And he, you know, he reflected on being a 12 year old and I'm a mom and I have a 12 year old son. So I really resonated with me and I loved what he was doing. But then he went on to talk about the fact that he's able to do all of this because he'd had an older sibling who had had crab A, who had been diagnosed, um, who had not been detected early enough to receive benefit from transplant. And so his older sibling had died at a very early age from the typical clinical journey of crab A. And so this young boy, whose name was Michael, gave this amazing testimony that he was able to do all of this because of the benefit of early detection, but unfortunately because his older sibling hadn't had that benefit. And I would just say that families who are able to stay in a community and continue to fight in a community in honor of their loved ones, even after such devastation as what Michael's family had experienced. And the fact that Michael's now carrying the baton, um, the siblings in our community really blow my mind. And so there are just so many people every single day who cause me to take pause um, and want to do better and fight harder. Um, but I am especially blown away by those who are growing up in the rare disease community and are going to, I think, take the baton from all of us and do even more than any of us have ever done. You're so right, Annie. I mean, it's the siblings of the children who didn't do as well are just becoming such advocates and they're really going to pave the way for the future. So thinking about your work in advocacy, how can MBSTRN help? So we, first of all, MBSTRN has already been such a wonderful partner of um, ours at the Everlay Foundation. Um, we have a newborn screening and diagnostics working group and MBSTRN is a really critical partner there. Um, as I mentioned, our most recent um, study assessing the timely diagnosis in rare disease, um, you guys, especially Dr. Brower, has been a part of our advisory committee. And um, within our boot camp, um, you guys are critical partners. I also would be remiss if I didn't um, say that for um, the better part of probably close to 15 years now, I always say 10, but I think I'm missing a few years. Um, I've been working um, and had the pleasure of being a part of the Duchenne um, newborn screening ecosystem and helped lead some efforts around developing an infrastructure for Duchenne newborn screening, which included the development of a pilot for uh, newborn screening in New York State. And MBSTRN was really our one of our critical partners in the development of those efforts, as well as the New York State pilot. And I really got to have a firsthand look at what a rare an important resource MBSTRN is, especially with respect to um, the LPDR and um, the unique data collection um, issues that LPDR can solve for. Um, so I think there are limitless opportunities for us to continue to partner together as we look at how we modernize our newborn screening system. One of the things I wrestle with is 
whether or not the existing newborn screening system is really fit for the rare disease community and how do we ensure that we update it so that it can be fit for the rare disease community. And I think that those are some of the questions that we have to urgently address and answer. But I think that MBSTRN is the right partner for us to be talking to as we really grapple with them. Um, And so that's maybe a dot, 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 and something that we sort of think about um, how we partner together more, um, you know, in 2023 and beyond, because I think we're just at the beginning of what this collaboration could be. Annie, thank you so much for sharing your personal journey and your career journey. Our listeners will benefit from learning about your advocacy work and your inspiring stories. We like to end our podcast with our signature question, and that is, what does newborn screenings research means to you? Newborn screening research means to me that no family would ever again undergo an unnecessary diagnostic odyssey or experience anything less than optimized therapeutic outcomes for their newborn baby. Full stop. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together, let's let's increase increase the impact impact of newborn screening research by listening to your stories. stories.